News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Alex Brooklyn, your producer here with my counterpart, Walter Cadillac Murray. And today we have a great episode for you. It is our State of NYC real estate episode. We have three of New York's best real estate reporters, Stephanos Chen from the New York Times, Rachel Holliday-Smith from The City, and Rebecca Baird-Rimba from the Commercial Observer. So anything you wanted to know about New York real estate, that behemoth of an issue, uh, listen up. Christina Greer and Katie Honan, take it away. And welcome back to FAQ NYC. I'm your co-host, Christina Greer, and I'm here with Katie Honan today. Hi, Katie. Hey, how are you doing, Chrissy? Good, thank you. We we let Harry Siegel run away for a little bit. Um, <laughs> but today we've got a great show. We've got a real estate roundtable. So we've got Rebecca Baird-Rembo, who's from Commercial Observer, Stephanos Chen from the New York Times, and Rachel Holliday-Smith from The City. Thank you, Rebecca, Stephanos, and Rachel for joining us. We are so thankful for you guys to be here. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so, thanks for having me. Thank you. And I mean, you know, uh, Rachel, you're old hat with us. <laughs> so yeah. I want to um, get just one or two minutes from each of you. Can you tell us what you're keeping an eye on? What do you think the biggest issue in New York City real estate is right now? Rebecca, let's start with you and welcome to FAQ. Thank you. Um, I feel like that's such a hard question. Uh, <laughs> I, You know, there's so many things, but... Uh, I just wrote a, a, a piece about um, the 15-minute grocery delivery services mm -hmm. and kind of how they're using retail space. And this question of, of dark stores and what that really means for New York City's slumping retail market and what it kind of means for the zoning is really, really interesting right now. And can um, you just quickly define what's a dark store? Sure. Dark store uh, basically means that you can't go inside. Uh, it basically only functions as a place where people either make food or or they store food there and they do deliveries out of it, um, that kind of thing, typically. Right. I did not know what a dark store was yeah, because I walked into the 15-minute grocery place like, <laughs> hi, so I need some bananas. And they're like, ma'am, beat it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Ex that's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and of, of course, I can read, right? I, I, I write every now and again. But all the signs on the door said, do not enter unless you are a driver. Do not come in. I was like, but I see bananas and I need them. Yeah, that's um, what shopping's about. If you see something in the store, you want to go buy it. Thank you, Katie. See, Queens girls are always on it. Uh, Stephanos, what's the biggest issue that you see uh, in the New York City real estate market right now? Uh, so I, I uh, focus a lot on the residential side of the market, and we've just been seeing such a crazy roller coaster over the last year and a half, uh, both on the rentals and sales side. But particularly, I think this is going to be the year where a lot hits the fan for renters. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we saw uh, a pretty sizable dip, mostly on the higher end of the market during the, the worst days of the pandemic. Uh, so far. And then uh, in the last couple of months, you know, all of that, those gains and concessions and free months of rent have really evaporated for a lot of folks. People are coming up for renewals uh, and they're getting really crazy sticker shock in terms of newer prices that are way higher. Uh, you have uh, prices overall in, in all the boroughs that are covered by the brokers saying that, uh, you know, prices are jumping, you know, between 10 and 20 percent from year over year. Um, so you've got people who are having to pay a lot more, people who are going to uh, be renewing uh, at really big numbers, you know, come spring and summer. 
And we're not even talking about uh, folks who are behind on the rent and uh, evictions being the second half of this kind of equation, which is you have tons of folks who are relying on emergency rental assistance money that uh, the governor has not been able to secure. Uh, only a fraction of what she's asked for has come through so far. So, um, you know, you you have sort of this, uh, uh, a whole lot of kind of risky uh, scenarios happening in this next year. And a lot of it has to do with with renters. So it sounds a little bit like the classic, like, blockbuster rental case where they, like, pulled us in with cheap videos for $1.50. And then once we all sort of started <laughs> renting from Blockbuster and our local video stores went away, they're like, oh, yeah, it's like, it's going to be four fifty per video. Yeah, then you don't rewind and it's like $10. <laughs> right. And then yeah. you're one minute late. It's like, we want your firstborn and your yeah. <laughs> And so, Rachel, MVP of FAQ, what are you working on? What do you see is the, the most important issue right now in New York City real estate? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to make me choose one, I'm going to answer with two, which is the two things I'm focusing <laughs> on right now, which is good cause eviction and 421A. Uh, so that's looking forward to policy in Albany. Uh, those are the two big things that tenants need to know about right now. Um, and I, we actually write a tenant-focused and rent-focused newsletter at the city. So that's going to be the big topic this week, which is just explaining what the heck Albany is talking about when it comes to, um, you know, tenant policy and renter policy um, and tax policy that affects renters in New York. Um, and I expect that the FAQ audience probably has some idea about what those things are, but it's just like super quickly, um, you know, 421A is the big, the biggest tax program in, in New York City that gives a lot, a lot of money to developers and um, landlords to incentivize certain types of buildings. Um, and Albany is hashing out right now the new version of that, which will have a huge impact on what types of things get built in New York. And then on the other side of things is good cause eviction, which is, I mean, if they actually pass it, it could be pretty monumental um, for New York, which is um, basically saying that landlords have to have a, a reason, a stated reason to not renew your lease. Um, and it'll give tenants a lot more power to stay in their rentals. On the other side of things, you know, the the real estate industry says, no way, we do not want this. This is way too much power for tenants. This is going to make it impossible to be a property owner. So we've got uh, some really big fights coming up right now. And Rachel, if you wanted to just explain a little bit more into what the new 421A would look, how it differs from previously and and any other changes. Yeah. And thank you so much for allowing me to talk about tax policy. (laughs) Who who else? Who else? (laughs) Um, Not many other people care. I'll try to make this accessible. Um, Basically, so right now under 421A, this is sort of a big change. Under 421A, um, there is a certain upper limit for the income restrictions that are allowed in affordable housing in new developments. So people are familiar with these lottery apartments, right? That, you know, there's certain income brackets that you fall into and you apply for a lottery unit and you get in that it would actually bring down the top income that is allowed for, um, you know, a rental unit. So instead of it being 130% of the area median income, uh, word salad, but it basically means, um, you know, you make that amount of money. Now it'll be the top will be 90% of the area median income. I don't know off the top what that is this year, but um, it'll lower that. It'll also um, give an option for developers to do affordable, in quotes, affordable, I'm doing quotes, (laughs) um, affordable condominium development with affordable units. Um, That will be 130% of area median income. So those are the two like highlights from the proposal from Governor Kathy Hochul. 
Um, she is pitching this as sort of like a reform of 421A. Uh, a lot of folks I talked to said that it's not really doing a ton to change it. It's not like a big restructuring, but it is, it's significant to people who build buildings every day. It's going to really change the math for them. So it's going to be interesting to see what gets hammered out. And just one brief follow-up. I mean, is there a large opposition to this change? And I guess who, who are those people? Yeah. Um, I would say that they're, well, the real estate industry in general always wants the most bang for their buck. So they, they, I think would be happy to sort of, you know, keep the incomes as high, as high as possible. Cause it gives them, um, more money to play with when they try to pencil out and make the buildings work and be in the black and they make a profit from that. Um, I've heard that they're a bit in chaos right now because they don't know what's going to actually be. It's more the uncertainty than any specific policy that's bothering them right now. They are scrambling at the moment to get foundations in the ground, literally, you know, piles in the ground to be, um, to be under the current program, uh, which expires in June. So they're trying to just um, beat that deadline and know what they're, they're going to get in terms of the tax break now, rather than roll the dice on the future um, unknown tax break. Um, so it's causing a lot of chaos and sort of stress in the real estate industry. Um, and I would say that just in sort of like a broad policy way, that there are folks who say, you know, if we tinker with this too much, it will really cause a lot of chaos with the housing pipeline, meaning there's a really big housing crisis in New York. We haven't kept up with the pace we need to build enough housing. Um, and if we change this tax breaks, you know, which has been around since the 70s, the real estate industry has gotten really used to it. And all the land prices and everything they do is based on this, what is in place now. If we change it too much, then, you know, the pipeline will dry up for a little while and um, we won't have enough housing in New York. So it's complicated. <laughs> so I wanted to bring in Stephanos, based on, Rachel, what you just said, Stephanos, who's our resident villain from <laughs> Days of Our Lives, um, because Stephanos, you know, we keep hearing about crime. You know, there's so much crime in New York, the crime in all the major cities. And I wanted you to walk us through, is crime really affecting, say, the real estate area, especially in the high crime areas that the mayor and city council members talk about, especially parts of Brooklyn? Um, are you seeing any effects there or is real estate in some ways immune to crime? Yeah, I, I don't think crime rates really affect uh, investment in some of these communities. And, and I, I think there's sometimes a conflation with, with what people consider high crime. But on the flip side is really just uh, quickly gentrifying areas uh, of, of parts of Brooklyn and Queens where uh, what we've been seeing even before the pandemic was you have a lot of uh, flippers coming in and people who are buying under LLCs and investor types who are buying what, uh, you know, used to just be inventory for families, single family and maybe two or three unit uh, family homes. Uh, so they'll come in and buy all cash in a brownstone or in East New York. And, um, you know, you'll find on any given block, like you'll find two or three of them sometimes in some of these neighborhoods now. Um, so I don't think so much that the crime is deterring anyone, really. Um, and I, I'm also kind of, I don't know how much that those crime numbers really in the scheme of things have, uh, how, how much of that is real. Um, but but I, I would say that in those neighborhoods that, uh, you know, prices have been growing considerably because these investors are pushing up prices. And it means that if you're a real you know person trying to buy and you're competing with uh, Mystery LLC, then they've got 100% cash and you 
are scrounging to put down, you know, 5% for your FHA loan, uh, you're not going to win that, that bid. So um, that's part of it. One of the, one of the real big reasons and, and issues for New York, which is helping first time buyers get in when they're competing with all cash investors. And, and those are like sort of ground zero, those neighborhoods you mentioned. Well, before we bring in Rebecca Stephanus, I want to ask you a follow up because I, I definitely feel that I was on the, the housing market last year. I would see a place that I liked and some, you know, I would get outbid because someone would come in, pay a hundred, offer to pay a hundred thousand dollars over asking, and they had a suitcase full of cash. And I was like, who are these people walking around with over a million dollars in cash? Clearly, like not professors. Um, but you know, so I just kept getting outbid and outbid. Ultimately, I ended up finding a co-op that I found that I fell in love with. And I did not want a co-op. I did not want to even look at co-ops because, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm black. And I had heard <laughs> horror stories about black people being on, on the housing market. And because there are no laws, and Stephanos, can you walk us through this? To my understanding, there are no laws for when a co-op board says... We don't want this person. They don't have to give like a real justification. And yeah. so I had always heard that, you know, it doesn't matter that I've got Ivy League degrees and I have a, a one of the last kind of stable jobs. I'm tenured, you know, so like barring any crazy shenanigans, I've got a job for life. And so it worked out for me, but my real estate agent who is, is not Black, you know, we had honest conversations about his frustration with having really qualified non-white uh, clients who just got turned down time and time again for co-ops and there was no justification, no explanation. So can you talk to us about that market? And in, are there is there any legislation that's trying to undo sort of these years and years of, of qualified non-white people trying to get into co-ops and even white people who were trying to get into co-ops where the board just doesn't have to give an explanation why they don't want them? Yeah, and, and before I forget, on, on that point about the, the people showing up with, with cash in, in the suitcase, I've heard... Uh, last year, we did a story about Black home ownership in the city. And just to tie it together with what we said about East New York earlier, there are unsolicited people showing up to these uh, longtime homeowners' houses saying, mm -hmm. I've got cash in the trunk of my car. I will show it to you and I will buy your house. Right. Um, so it, it's And that's not in that D.C., way. that's in Philly. I mean, I've talked to different people who like have people knocking on their door. Um, yeah, they even yeah. have signs on the door like, we're not interested in selling. Leave us alone. Right. Chicago, you name it. But so on the flip side, when, I guess when you're pushed out of that, that single family home market, which is probably the most expensive thing you can buy in a city, uh, then you look at condos and you probably don't qualify for that because you need a lot of cash. And then you look at co-ops because they're on, on the uh, on balance cheaper than the other two categories. Um, but the, but I think what you're, you're mentioning here is the, is the biggest issue, which is uh, these really opaque processes for getting qualified. Like I've had plenty of friends who look great on paper and then they get rejected for uh, absolutely no valid reason as far as they can tell. Um, and so what's happening now is there are uh, rules being, uh, laws being suggested that would uh, force co-op boards to be transparent about the reasons for why they are rejecting uh, your co-op uh, package, uh, which would be pretty huge in that, you know, uh, for years we've, you know, heard of these stories of whether it's based on, on race or, or other presumptions that they make about a uh, you know, person coming in, whether they're borrowing with a certain product, for instance, if it's an FHA loan again, which is harder to qualify for, uh, or this does not look as favorably upon, um, that you know, a, lo a lot of folks are not getting into these buildings because they, they are uh, these 
well-established co-op co boards, often a bunch of uh, older white people, and uh, you know the sort of gatekeeping that goes on in those buildings. And so, um, you know, the, the, these rules, if, if they take effect, would be really huge. I mean, I don't, um, I don't know currently how far along they are, but but um, you know, I, I'm sure right now there's uh, there are co-op board associations that are uh, not thrilled about it because they sort of have to show how the sausage is made. And Rebecca, I did want to pivot to you in discussing, you know, some of the, when it comes to real estate, obviously it's residential real estate is thriving across New York City. And there are a lot of concerns on the commercial uh, front, not to make a storefront pun or that wasn't intended. Katie, <laughs> see yourself out. I know. So <laughs> I, what, what, are, what is, I know in certain parts of the city, there was really not as much of an effect from COVID. But if you want to talk about the state of our commercial stores, from the dark stores that you mentioned earlier to what is going on. And then we can talk a little bit about um, outdoor dining and then the future of that as well. Sure. Um, I, I just wanted, can I make a quick addendum about that, that crime and real estate values question? Yeah, please do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I just have a lot of, I also, I am a renter in a co-op building and I don't know if you guys know about this, but there's like, as a renter in a co-op building, you do not have the same rights as yeah, renters yeah, in I did that too, buildings. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> Co-ops are not regulated the same way. They can charge you whatever they want for the application fees. It's crazy. <laughs> they have all these, they get all these carve-outs in the rental laws. And I feel like it's it's this un really under-discussed topic because there are landlords essentially operating co-ops as rental buildings, yeah. sort of just totally flying under the radar. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, and also, uh, I, I, and I'm sure Stefanos knows this, that the, the inventory in New York city is, I think, tighter even than it was in 2019 at this point. So a little, a little tiny increase in some categories of crime, I don't think outweighs the fact that there's like 20% less inventory yeah. on the market than there was pre COVID it's oh. the, the level of, of even Rentals and I think cops and condos, it's just very, very low. So it's, I think it, that stuff, like minor, minor increases in crime, I think just don't, don't dissuade people <laughs> um, when it's, when the market's this tight. Um, yeah, but so, but <laughs> apologies for that tangent. Um, no, it's perfect. And no, it's true. Perfect. And I think it, and, it, and it gives more context to something that people say a lot, but isn't true. So, yeah. Um, and because I just wrote a, a story about like why is Greenpoint so expensive, and it was basically like because everything on the market there is like you know five thousand dollar two bedrooms in Greenpoint Landing. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but so, oh, so but your 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 question was about uh, the the state of the retail market. Yeah, yeah, and I know that okay. also gets discussed as when people want to use it about what New York needs after COVID and what they see mm -hmm. as a decline in New York City and, and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's really interesting because the dark stores, I feel like people see them as a threat, like the, the grocery delivery services. Um, and it, what's, what's kind of fascinating about them is that they, they have this tendency to take spaces that a lot of traditional retailers just don't want, really. They take spaces with lots of columns. They take spaces with, with on sort of low foot traffic side streets. So, so a lot of, you know, places that, that often landlords were like, I couldn't get anyone to rent this, you know, but you guys don't need to renovate the space. You can just wheel in your big fridges uh, <laughs> and, and sort of just do your thing. 
Um, cause you know, a store, a regular store doesn't want this. A restaurant definitely doesn't want this if you can't properly vent it for a safe kitchen use. So, um, yeah, pretty interesting. But so they sort of became a little bit of a, a savior for some of these landlords in parts of Manhattan that were really, really, really struggling. Um, cause the retail market sort of collapsed. I mean, it was already struggling even before the pandemic, but yeah. Um, it, it sort of, there was just this huge downward spiral in rents and a huge upward trend in vacancies across most of, uh, the office sort of neighborhoods of, of Manhattan. So Midtown, um, financial district, um, those kind of places. Um, and they really won't, I think they won't see sort of, uh, a real, uh, rebound until, I think at least 50% of people are back in the office and, you know, going out to buy a lunch at least a couple of times a week. Um, Cause that's what all those places are dependent on. And if I could just ask one follow-up and um, I know it sort of combines two issues in New York city. Well, what if we turn commercial buildings into affordable housing? I mean, how realistic and how difficult is that? I know that the way the buildings are constructed, mm-hmm. it's not, if you can imagine any open concept, office. You can't, it's hard to imagine that becoming a home. So if you want to talk a little bit about, I know there's been some initiatives and some state bills that require state legislation and all that. If you want to talk a little bit about the, how, how likely that could even happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, so Governor Hochul, um, you know, has, she seems fairly determined to make some of this stuff a reality. And she inserted in her executive budget proposals um, a, a few different um, sort of things that would sort of function as, as zoning and code overrides in New York City, um, essentially to allow landlords to more easily convert uh, certain kinds of offices and uh, certain kinds of um, and hotels as well uh, to affordable housing. Um, the office stuff is is more complex because it's like layered on top of the existing rules. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like buildings built from 1960 and 1970 in these parts of Manhattan can do this. And ones built from 1970 to 1980 can do this. Um, but uh, essentially, yeah, the, the aim is clearly to, to, to make it sort of a lot easier for, for landlords to use their existing um, certificates of occupancy, which sort of governs what you can do with the building. Um allows them to to use use those the ones they have say if you're if you're a hotel you can keep your your hotel cfo that's on file with the department of buildings rather than going through the long process of trying to change it to make it a residential building um and you'll essentially just be able to be allowed to convert your building but and i think this was also written into the the language about the office conversions as well mm-hmm. is that if 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 you if you want to go this route this sort of easier route of the residential conversion for your commercial building or your hotel, um, you are subject to rent regulation, um, which is, which is kind of fascinating. Um, especially since commercial conversions, especially of offices are historically quite expensive and difficult. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't know. Well, I, I will see what happens and see who is willing to take advantage of these. Cause you know, at this point in the pandemic, nobody's, I know of like one hotel that's really like raring to go and ready. They want to convert to some kind of residential use. 
Um, but you, I haven't heard of any, any landlords that are like, yes, I'm definitely doing this. So <laughs> Politico, Politico, New York, just about in Politico, New York reported recently that only one hotel yeah. had applied to this program. Mm, so yeah. it's, you well, know, there's I, really no program. I mean, there's no, I they, don't, there is no program. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I, I've got a question for each of you, like, that I want each of you to sort of take a stab at from your respective angles. Um, I was up near Columbia yesterday and uh, I lived in that neighborhood for 20 years. And I remember all the mom and pop stores. Um, and there was a Korean restaurant that I used to always go to, you know, sort of the great lunch special. And of course they had a sign that said, you know, after 35 years, we're so sorry. We just couldn't make it through COVID. We had to close. And obviously that happens that was happening well before COVID. And I always thought it was because Columbia would buy the building and jack up the rent. But obviously now with COVID, I think that's happening, but some other things that are happening. And so in that neighborhood, we now have Sweetgreen and Shake Shack and Panda Express. And essentially it's looking like a suburban mall, slowly but surely. And so as I walk through the city, it seems like these little neighborhoods, because that's all New York is, is just a cluster of like tiny little neighborhoods. More and more of them are reminding me of kind of like this like Target Marshall's old AV, you know, like whenever you leave the city, you go to Long Island or, you know, you go to any city in the in the quasi like burbs um, and you just see these chain restaurants and these chain stores. And I feel like I keep seeing more and more of those in New York. So can each of you kind of tackle it from your respective angles? Like, what is going on? Is it because mom and pops just straight up can't afford the rent once their leases are up if they don't own the building? Or is there something else going on that we should know about? Um, how about I'll just go Stephanos, Rachel, Rebecca. Uh, well, that just reminded me that back onto the, the dark stories that Rebecca was talking about. There was uh, an Entenmann's in my neighborhood, like the only Entenmann's outlet I've ever seen in the city. And they got shut down and replaced by one of these brand new 15 minute delivery places. So now I, I just unreasonably oh, hate. That's sad. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, it's not like Entenmann's was some great, you know, right. but, but still, but it was the Entenmann's store. It's the principle of the Entenmann's. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but the, to, the, to the point of like mom and pops disappearing, I, I think, um, you know, we don't have commercial rent uh, control. We don't have uh, a lot of protections for these folks even before the pandemic happened. Um, so uh, I, th I think it's just a safer bet to bring in some of the big chains who, who are willing to pay and, and maybe are doing so at a scale where they don't mind that they're paying an arm and a leg for, uh, you know, ground floor retail. Um, so that, that, that sort of creep of like big box stores coming in, I think has been happening for a while. Like I'm, I live in a story in Queens and if you go down Steinway, it's just like, really can be sad if you go there in the morning and, and you know, a quarter of the stores are shuttered. Um, you, you see those signs on the door that say, you know, closing sale. I mean, a lot of those are fake anyway. It's like closing sale, leaving closing for three years. <laughs> right, exactly. but, <laughs> but, but still like, you know, and, and then they're being replaced by Chipotle's and, and McDonald's and, and so, um, so yeah, I, I think that, that definitely, um, ha there has been that sort of creep for a while now. I, and, um, yeah, I, I don't know what the solution to it is. I'm sure there are a lot of, uh, advocacy groups that, that have thoughts on, on how to make them more affordable for these, uh, mom and pop type stores but um you know uh with the offices a lot a lot of these uh stores were supported like in midtowns and other mm -hmm. central business districts are supported by the office economy and because so many of the offices are still closed that has an effect on you know everything from the food cart guy to uh to the stores on, on the street yeah and it's so funny now that we're we're seeing even in 
with those big box stores or those chain stores, like in those central business district areas, we're seeing the closures of those. It's like when people got nostalgic for Barnes and Noble closing when they had killed all the independent bookstores. Um, but so interestingly to me is that, you know, some of these mom and pop strips in the outer boroughs particularly survived better than other other types of stores just because the people who lived in those neighborhoods stayed and had their income mm-hmm. and were spending mm-hmm. money locally. I just found that really fascinating. Like I live, you know, near um, Fifth Avenue in, in Park Slope, the other fifth, they call it. Um, and they, you know, the liquor stores there were doing like incredibly well because there were people around <laughs> to support them, the mom and pop liquor stores right? and, and the pie shop and the, um, but I don't know. I see, I see, I think I'm echoing what Stefanos just said, which is just, you know, they're the people who the organizations, the businesses that have the capital and the sort of foundation and the stability to sign a long-term lease and pay the money. They're the ones that can make it work. And it's just, it's really hard still to open a small business and keep it open for a 10 year lease. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what I think I heard you say is sort of like those sixth avenues, like the, the McDonald's on sixth Avenue or the CBS on sixth Avenue that closed. It's largely because those, those office workers weren't there to support yeah. that big chain. However, we did see the survival of certain mom and pops in particular communities because people were home and able to support. I definitely tried to support mom and pops as much as I could, uh, especially, you know, during like lockdown, lockdown. And Rebecca, what are, what are your thoughts on it? Um, yeah, Rachel's absolutely right about the the retail market being much more stable um, in the outer boroughs and on the Upper East and Upper West Sides where people live. The rents were much more stable. Um, the vacancy rates were much lower um, than than Midtown and and the financial district. And um, so it yeah it, it it was really fascinating. Um, but uh, I'm trying to remember what what. <laughs> Original question was I was. I mean, I was just um, I was just asking, sort of, what is the root cause of so oh. many mom and pops closing, even before COVID, but especially now, and of being course. replaced by these big chains? I think you'll right. sort of answering, you know. Right. But like, is there anything that can be done, or is it just yeah. this is the nature of the beast, and the the rent is so <laughs> the rent's too damn high, and there's nothing that even small businesses can do. Um, yeah. So one interesting artifact of the retail market being really messy during the pandemic is that people who wanted to open a small business and had the resources to do so were more able to do so than they were, I would say, two years ago because the rents were so low mm-hmm. and people were so desperate to have tenants and, you know, uh, sign leases in general. Um, so. so so because of that, I mean, I guess this goes back to, Stefano, something that you mentioned before, and I want to get your the three of you and your various perspectives. What are we seeing with the evictions since the moratorium essentially ended on the commercial and residential fronts? And, you know, does that is that affecting say luxury buildings as well or is it is it across the board or is it just sort of particular uh, markets and and particular types of housing and rental units Stephanos, Rachel Rebecca oh it's uh well I'd say um I'm thinking back to a, a report that uh, a group called ANHD put out earlier this year or maybe last year uh, which showed where the uh, eviction filings were happening. And it, it was really stark to see that four times as many of the eviction filings were happening in the neighborhoods with the highest rates of COVID. 
And then if you look at the map of what those neighborhoods were, they are predominantly black and brown communities in the outer boroughs, Corona and Queens, uh, you know, parts of, of Central Bronx, uh, Northeast Staten Island, uh, places uh, where it was basically people who couldn't work from home. And so those are the folks who really are uh, kind of uh, looking down the barrel of the gun right now uh, as uh, the moratorium is over. Really right now, your only protection in some ways is if you're in the queue for the emergency rental assistance program. And that's the program we mentioned earlier where Governor Hochul aimed to get a billion dollars in this latest tranche of money, and she got like 3% of that. Um, so uh, really shortfall in what they were hoping to get. I think I know that they're still pushing for more. But um, yeah, it, it's a very precarious situation. And many of those folks have arrears of more than $10,000. Uh, and so, you know, it's not a situation that's just going to clear itself up. It's not like you can go to the landlord and say, I'll give you, you know, right. even if I didn't have it last month, I don't have it this month. Right. And, Plus and even, and, you know, we've also heard of folks who did get uh, that, that first tranche of aid from emergency rental uh, assistance. And now they're, you know, behind the eight ball again. Uh, just because they weren't even able to both feed themselves and pay the back rent, you know, even with with that aid. So um, you know, even though things are opening up again, I think it's important to consider that there's still a really big population of people who uh, aren't getting the help they need still. I would offer just a tiny silver lining that people may have forgotten about when it comes to the courts grinding back into gear on evictions, which is that we now have legal protection, rather um, representation for people in housing court, which we did not have before the pandemic. Um, there is right to counsel. So if you make under a certain amount and you are in housing court, you can actually get an attorney, which is going to be a huge game changer for folks. Um, and the other sort of saving grace, although it's extremely dark to think about, is that it's going to take a long time for all these cases to grind forward. Um, there's a huge backlog in housing court. And so if you're facing eviction right now, it's horrible, but at the same time, it's going to take like months and months for those cases to all happen. So it's not like when the eviction moratorium, you know, ended, I think people were thinking, oh, a day, it's going to be a huge wave of people in housing court. Everyone's going to get thrown out to the street. That hasn't happened the way that, you know, it was portrayed yet, but that doesn't mean that there's not a huge wave of people coming down the pike. It's just, it's going to take a long, long time for it to unspool. Right. So it, if it comes down on March 1st, we're not going to see people in the street March 2nd. Like, it's going to take right. some time for it to work yeah. through the system. Rebecca? Um, yeah, so on the, the topic of evictions and ERAP, actually, um, and I only you noticed, said ERAP? Yes, the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, um, which you both were discussing, which, which Stefano's talked about. Um, yeah, on the uh, that program, um, and because I talked to a bunch of attorneys about it, it's the only reason I know this, that if you are in-house in court and you've already applied for ERAP, you can't, you, you cannot be evicted. And that's, that's how the program is set up. And so I think that that is, is really a significant factor in what's preventing, you know, eviction cases from really moving forward. Um, and I suspect, although I don't know for sure that the, if, Eviction cases that have proceeded and have resulted in people actually being evicted are probably ones that were significantly advanced um, because the courts were so backlogged during COVID. So they may have been eviction cases that were started before the pandemic or that were started, you know, several months ago. Um, so I at least and and there may be situations where people didn't have the help of a lawyer to apply to ERAP 
or they didn't, you know, understand, um, or they're from before the pandemic. So before I let you guys out of here, two questions. The first one's for Stephanos and the second one's for Rachel and Rebecca. So Stephanos, my, my first question for you is, where are some of these folks moving once they get evicted? And is it someplace, and Rachel, you might have thoughts too, um, once folks are, you know, either being forced out of their homes that they own or have been renting, are they moving someplace that's uh, within commuting distance? Are they staying within the five boroughs or are we seeing people just leave the city altogether? That, I think that's a huge problem uh, because I think that first wave of, of flight during the COVID uh, was mostly affluent, very mobile people who had the means to leave and, and are coming back. And there are the same people who are now raising rents uh, because of that demand and the tight inventory. Uh, the people who now need to leave, leave are people who didn't leave during the pandemic, which is the mm-hmm. irony of it. They were the ones who, who kept the city down during uh, the pandemic. And, you know, when you talk to a lot of tenants who might be facing bigger rears, they really don't have uh, a place in mind. And it's certainly not going to be in the five boroughs. I mean, number one, because if they're in arrears, they probably can't afford the huge cost of getting a new apartment, which involves yeah. moving fees and also, you know, a couple First months, months rent, last month security, all of that. Yeah. So that's out of the question. Um, and a lot of them already live in the cheapest parts of the city, like in, in parts of the Bronx where the, where the uh, eviction rates are very high. Um, they, uh, you know, if you're not in the Bronx, where do you go in the five boroughs? I mean, a lot of folks. Right. Or uh, East Flatbush or Canarsie. Or, yeah. Yeah. And it, it sometimes it means leaving this, the city, the state altogether, the country. I mean, some folks, if, if they have family elsewhere, um, uh, just might be leaving altogether, which, uh, is definitely a drain on the city's resources of people that like really were critical and we needed them. And now there's really not a place for them. Mm. I talked to a woman in the Bronx um, for the story I did about the eviction moratorium, and she was being really realistic about it. And she was facing down an eviction case. You know, she, her her landlord wanted her out. She had not paid rent in a long, long time since the pandemic. Um, and she was being realistic and she has a couple of cats. And she said, I might try to find a place for my cats to be. And I'm probably going to have to go in the shelter system. But she really didn't want to. I mean, she's very fearful of it. So I think that's that's the answer for a lot of people. They don't have family and friends around. They don't have a couch they can crash on and they very well may end up in the shelter system. It's the horrific reality of it. Right. That's what always, you know, worries me where so many of these these families who were already in precarious economic circumstances, they're in communities where other people are in precarious economic circumstances. So if, if I'm down and out, so are you, uh, and we can't necessarily rely on each other economically. Um, so the last question, I want to thank you all so much for joining us on FAQ NYC. I've learned so much and I can't wait to share this with folks um, because obviously housing is of great concern to so many people. I think my my last piece is about Eric Adams and this particular, <laughs> everyone smiles in their own special smile. Um, but how would you describe this new mayor and his policy and his attitudes towards big developers, toward renters? Uh, is there anything that he's done thus far that signals how he is going to behave moving forward one way or the other, good or bad? Um, Stephanos, I'll start with you and I'll go back. Stephanos, Rachel, and Rebecca, you'll close us out. Uh, he's just like a weird dude. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, I, I, I think he, he, he's been across the, uh, he's been hard to, to 
pin down in, on certain uh, views. In, in, oh, he's certain... definitely a wave upon the sand. He is <laughs> having some problem like Maria. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think what's interesting, though, I, what, what is pretty clear is that there's at least more of, uh, of an affable relationship between him and the governor, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it reminds me, we were talking earlier with Rebecca about the conversion of commercial buildings and hotels and how so little of that has happened. And a lot of that had to do with the breakdown of communication between state and city and how it was kind of like, no, I won't let you override my zoning regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like Eric Adams seems more open to that, uh, at least for the time being with, with Hochul. This is maybe, you know, the preliminary stage of their relationship, but figuring out that, uh, you know, a lot to stake for him and getting some of this, these housing initiatives going. Um, so it's in his interest to uh, put on a good face and work with, with Albany in a way that, you know, really became impossible towards the end of, of Cuomo's term. Um, so, you know, there's hope at least that he might be kind of heterodox and, and all over the place, but that um, he'll, he'll do things differently in any way than, uh, than de Blasio. Well, I think it's in, I think it's in his interest to work with Hochul partially because he has said so little that's concrete to sort of deliver on some of these big campaign promises he made about this stuff. Like I'm going to convert 20,000 units of housing from hotels. And I was like, how are you going to do that? We don't know. <laughs> Nobody said anything. <laughs> I'm going to do it. That's it. Um, yeah. I mean, the, yes, he has thrown a lot of ideas out there, which is, you know, we'll see if they come true, but the word that comes to mind is he's a little bit like entrepreneurial or just like innovative. He just throws mud at a wall to see what sticks um, and we'll see what sticks. I, the thing that really has caught my attention on the campaign trail when he was um, before the primary even, and then now um, is that he has said that he wants to upzone rich neighborhoods to put it very bluntly. Um, This is something I could not imagine a mayoral candidate saying even five years ago, it is remarkable to me. He is saying we should add density to wealthy neighborhoods. That is wild. Um, And I'm very much looking forward to um, seeing what he puts out on that, because if you talk to policy wonks, you know, the, the folks who really want to see a lot of affordable housing in New York say that is the best way to do it without spending a lot of public money because you can get mm-hmm. te- developers who want to actually build there to build housing. Um, but, you know, the park slopes of the world and the West Villages of the world are going to fight tooth and nail on that. I'm not saying that those are the places he's identifying, but um, that's going to be huge. Right. We can we can follow some of the other debates about school integration and all types of things to, to make some assumptions as to who would kick up the most sand. Well, I can't thank you all enough, our perfect real estate roundtable, for joining us here in FAQ NYC. Rebecca Baird, Remba of the Commercial Observer, Stephanos Chen from the New York Times, and Rachel Holiday-Smith from the city. Can you all please promise that you'll come back and talk to us again? <laughs> yeah, of course. Anytime. Oh. Anytime. Oh, thank you. Rebecca, land us in. <laughs> F-A-Q. All right. You ready, buddy? This is your big debut. <clears throat> FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics. Check us out at thebrick.house. We are headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research at New York University. And this episode was recorded all over the city. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and this week's episode was mixed and edited by Adam Kamara. 
Special thanks to our gang. Special thanks to our guests, Rachel Holiday Smith from the city, Stephen Chang from New York Times, and Rebecca Baird Rumba from Commercial Observer. Stay cool out there. Be kind. Be honest. Be a hustler. Do what you need to do. Walter, say bye.